she's pouring from the sky. Stash some chips up. No fear of missing out. I'm about to dip and flip. What? Now pump it up and double up is what we hit. What? 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 This is it. What? Satoshi's pouring from the sky. Stash some chips up. No fear of missing out. I'm about to dip and flip. What? Welcome to 21ism.com, the sound culture renaissance. We curate, craft, and amplify Bitcoin-inspired creativity. Featured in the meme block this month is a man who has practically become a meme himself. His contributions to the space are plentiful. Memes, writing, commentary, evangelism, and plenty of silly. His most impactful meme is now so ingrained in our culture that later entrants probably don't even know its origins. Mining this block is me, Badders, and let me start by quoting the man himself from a now legendary tweet. Preston, your wife is hot. Good job. (laughs) American Hoddle, welcome to 21ism, brother. (laughs) Your intro was far too kind and makes me out to be uh, some sort of think boy, uh, which, which I am not, certainly. I'm just a dude who... Uh, can't keep his fucking mouth shut, really. <laughs> oh, but I mean, we all know that, but it doesn't mean we appreciate you any less. <laughs> Th- think boy is is a, is a is a great term, anyway. Oh, I love I love um, think boy. I I first saw Gigi uh, use it, and I thought it was just phenomenal. Um, because you know, you you know you know who a think boy is when you see one, right? Like, I know, if you, and if that's you definitely a, not you. If you have a TED, if you have a TED talk, <laughs> don't worry. You, you might be a think boy. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It, it definitely has an air of self-importance. Exactly. But anyway, you're back, man. Back on Twitter. Yes, sir. You missed out on the spaces chat that we had with uh, President Bukele. And, I, uh, I did. You yeah. just FOMO'd in hard. I'm uh, I, I'm now banned from Spaces uh, permanently after I uh, I had a debate with a certain character named uh, Dieter Bob. Uh, <laughs> that, that one that. that one got me banned. I'm permanently banned from Spaces, and uh, so is Dieter, I believe. Uh, I think everybody is, who was involved got banned permanently. That is beautiful. That that's that that's to be guessed. Like that, if you if you guys would finally speak together, that either you'd be become bros for life, or that you'd both get banned from whatever uh, situation you were in. You know, it's weird. A uh, weird trivia fact: me and Dieter actually share the same birthday, uh, which lets you know that maybe there's something to astrology. I don't know. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> maybe um, you're, maybe you're long lost twins. Yeah, I uh, took a little. I took a little break. <laughs> took a little break from Twitter uh, for you know a variety of reasons. One is that the uh, the fiat rabbit hole, you know, conspiracy rabbit hole, it it just grows endless, and the things that are happening in the traditional world and the traditional environment are just, you know, I'm going to be honest, they're incredibly distressing to me. Um, where the path we're heading down, especially here in America which seems to be going through some sort of a a Maoist cultural revolution at the moment in an effort to control those uh, dissenting voices who won't go along. And, you know, it's when you're on Twitter, there's this, there's a separation between 
um, what the official narrative is or the approved narrative. And there is, mm-hmm. you know, what you can see with your own eyes happening in real time. And it's, it's just incredibly disconcerting. And so the Bitcoin stuff on Twitter, like I love, but honestly, if I'm, I'm being totally honest, um, I just feel like there's so much happening in the fiat world and it is being, uh, corrupted and it is crumbling in such a way that is, it just feels distressing because it, it just doesn't feel like there's anything that, uh, one can possibly do about it other than to protect themselves by, you know, storing their wealth in Bitcoin, uh, having some sort of, you know, plan for if things get really out of hand, uh, maybe moving to a jurisdiction that's favorable to freedom and liberty still, um, those kinds of things. But yeah, just seeing every day I turn on Twitter and I just go, Jesus, what are they doing now? They're doing that? Really? That's crazy. Like we're living in a crazy world, you know? The kind of shit that if you'd even just a couple of years ago had seen that happen in another country... You had been outraged, right? Um, um, everyone in your country would have been outraged, and now they are apologizing for what's happening. Oh yeah, yeah, and they found you know effective methods of control, um, such as calling everybody a racist who doesn't go along with their agenda. So if you don't go along with their agenda, you're now you're now anathema, and you are branded a racist. Uh, you're uncouth for society, and, and you're liable to be canceled not only off social media, but uh, to be canceled, you know, uh, your banking relationships, uh, your personal relationships, your business relationships. So, yeah, I mean, these social attacks are incredibly distressing to people who fall under them. Now, like for me, as somebody who uh, is independently uh, wealthy and has, you know, Bitcoin to protect myself, I don't feel that much um, of a uh, of a fear towards that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it definitely is affecting regular people um, to an insane degree, and it is you know shifting the course of society. Well, like I can feel it as an American. You know, freedom of speech has always been something that we really prized, and we always really spoke our minds, whether it was at home or at work or in the public square. And now people are just more or less afraid to speak out, um, especially in their work environments, their school environments, their social environments, their community environments, and. Uh, that's really bad because if you can't source the truth, you're going to end up just going down a deep, dark path from which there is no escape. But it seems like that's the direction everybody wants to head. So that's the direction we're heading, right? Yeah, man, I can I completely agree with you on on, on all those points, and, and as I think most Bitcoiners would, um, it it is disconcerting, and while. We can think that Bitcoin fixes this, and I think ultimately it will. I'm, I feel I feel confident of that. It's just the question of what will the world look like by the time Bitcoin mm. fixes this? How much has been changed and destroyed forever? And what is it like to live through it? You know, like uh, for me, um, I was early mm. to the COVID thing. Like I, I knew that COVID was going to be a big deal going back to early January of 2020. And, you know, I began stocking up well before other people, before panic set in. And, you know, I I felt kind of crazy at the time. Like I felt like, well, maybe I'm just being nuts because I'm stocking up on canned food and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, in retrospect, obviously, I was like well ahead of the curve. And so I anticipated this event coming, but I did not anticipate what it was going to be like to live through it and all of the externalities, right? Like, I mean... 
it's just a very long bet to make it through something like that. And most people are not able to make it through something like that, you know? So the transitionary Mm -hmm. times are going to be some of the most difficult times, uh, for Bitcoiners in general. And I think we got to do our best to stay sane and level-headed and, uh, you know, calm and reasonable because if you let your emotions get the better of you, uh, you might be swayed one way or the other, you know? It's difficult though, right? Um, yeah. I, I feel myself occasionally being, <laughs> being quite um, outraged, angry, frustrated, but I choose like, like I'm sure you do and, and, and many other Bitcoiners to, to channel it in a positive way, right? Mm-hmm. Stack more sats, be more independent, work out your options, train, be ripped, healthy, and, uh, you know, put yourself in a better position than, than most other people have a chance to, to be in just because they don't see what's coming. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think, um, all you can really do is dive headfirst into personal responsibility because in a world in which it seems that everything is falling to pieces and you have no control over everything, uh, the one thing that you do have control over is yourself. And so you should just focus on the things that you can control and do the very best you can. And, you know, I think that that will cause a reduction in anxiety and in stress. Um, you know, I like everybody told me it was a bad idea to put all my money in Bitcoin, obviously, for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, I went against the culture on that, as many of us did. Um, and, you know, it turned out to be extremely fortuitous for me. And now I don't worry about some of the same things that I used to worry about. You know, I have different concerns now. I have uh, champagne problems, as they say, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, dude, I want to I come back to all of that because... Um it all ties into the money, right? We we mm-hmm. we all agree with that, and um, that's definitely something I want to explore more. But but um, yeah, let, let, let's let's take it back a bit. Um, I didn't I didn't get onto Twitter until very late eighteen or early nineteen. But obviously, you're 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 fucking loudmouth, so it's difficult. <laughs> Um, it was difficult to miss you. And um, so so you have this sort of very sort of idiosyncratically irreverent kind of um, voice, I suppose. Um, uh, sharp, witty, and spicy, definitely, as well. Um, but but it, it also appears to me that a lot of what you are trying to do is kind of be... A community voice in a sense i don't know whether you set out to be but you certainly have become that and almost a bit sort of like um trying to look out for people's best interest which includes sometimes punching them in the dick <laughs> yeah that that definitely is true i don't um community voice i don't know if i'd say because you know uh, there isn't there is no bitcoin community right and like there's so many different voices and you know i'm, I'm really just some ass clown who is sharing his opinions. Um, I think for me, a lot of it just comes from a uh, hard one, you know, wisdom, just being here, making mistakes myself, and then hoping that people don't make those same mistakes. Um, some of it is a filtering mechanism also, because, you know, Bitcoin uh, is going to make its early participants extremely prosperous. 
And to be frank, I want uh, the people that are most prosperous to sort of think like me. And so humor or irreverent humor has been an effective uh, filtering mechanism in that regard because only people who actually have a sense of humor uh, get in and then eventually get orange pill. And I think you see this throughout the Bitcoin community. It's not just not just on my account, but we tend to filter out people that uh, might be, you know, ultimately ruinous to the Bitcoin project, right? Um, yeah, I, th- I think for me, it was just in the early, it was the same thing on Twitter that was happening on Reddit was it was very difficult to tell who was legit and who was not. So, you know, you just start keeping score. You find out for yourself after maybe you listen to the wrong person. Um, I know there were a lot of people who listened to like, for instance, uh, Murad, uh, who was saying that the Bitcoin price was going to go down to 1800 and then they were mm-hmm. mad at him when it didn't go down to 1800 Yeah. You know, so you get, you get burned a little bit and you realize like these people are not the trusted authorities that they might appear to be. Um, so, you know, you just start tracking it. And for me, part of that was just calling out other people publicly and not being afraid to challenge people or whatever the, you know, the idea is or the narrative is and using, you know, humor as a way to do that and just being a sort of a sarcastic dickhead at times. But then also like, I, I really do care about the people that are you know, buying Bitcoin, I want them to succeed. And so, you know, it's like, here's some reminders and some coaching to stay on the path also. And just, I don't know, you just throw that all up into a blender and you get whatever it is that American Idol is, you know. But it's, it's interesting, this whole question of, of whether there is a community or not, because to me, it just feels like one giant classroom. And like, yeah. you've got, you've got the different p- personality, right? I mean, Bitcoin you, Twitter you is a, there. Bitcoin Twitter is a community, right? But well, uh, th- that's what, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what Twitter is to me. I mean, fuck the rest of Twitter. It's a, it's yeah, a fucking yeah. madhouse. Um, I, I, I try not to go there because it makes me lose faith in humanity. I know it's, it's very disappointing, <laughs> but you know, that's, I think that's another part of the reason why we all went to Twitter is because, uh, you know, then there's. When it's just all of us, it becomes noxious. Um, but when there are mm-hmm. other people to play against, you know, there are foil characters. Uh, it's a lot more interesting, right? Like, we all need to heal, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Like, for instance, uh, Representative Brad Sherman, uh, who was just out there in Congress today, you know, saying all sorts of crazy things about Bitcoin, calling for an outright ban on it. You know, he's been a heel in the in the Bitcoin space for a long time, and we appreciate his sacrifice of his reputation for Bitcoin's ascendance <laughs> because I mean, yeah, people will we, not look back on those quotes favorably. And we appreciate the opportunity to, um, rub his nose in what he left on the, exactly. on the rug. Exactly. Um, but uh, so, so it's with that in mind, it strikes me also that, uh, you know, one of your, I don't know whether, you, whether you could say it's one of your biggest contributions, but certainly one that will, that has taken on a life, of itself, and, and and who knows how, how how long it will stay around for, is um is is six point one five. Yeah, yeah. So eternal riches and big titty bitches. <laughs> yeah. yeah you, so you you drop that in the middle of the bear, I think, at some point. Didn't yes, you? around nineteen, uh, around mid nineteen, late late eighteen, early nineteen. I think was when. Right. Maybe mid nineteen was when I came up with that. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a, it's exactly as it seems. It was a lure for young males uh, to stay motivated. It was a carrot, a carrot and stick approach, right? Um, essentially, you know, and there's also been this, there's always been stacking goals in the Bitcoin community, which uh, when I first came in, the stacking goal was 21 coins. 
Um, so if you had 21 coins, you know, no more than a million people were ever going to be richer than you. And so that was a great goal to aspire to. And, uh, you know, over time that became out of reach of the average person. It was very unreasonable. And so people said we should lower it to 2.1 Bitcoin, right? Which at the time would have been like, um, I don't know, $15,000, even less actually, because it was like 3,200 at the bottom, right? So under 10 grand to get 2.1 Bitcoin. But to me, I basically was like, listen, 2.1 is not enough. This thing has greater, uh, you know, security. It's less risky, greater perceived security, et cetera. So you need to reach a little higher. And so I set it, you know, 3x higher at 6.15. And then I attached uh, the lure that if you had 6.15, a large breasted women would be attracted to you. And uh, every young male that's like, of course, well, then if this man on the internet has said it, it must be true. And I will endeavor to get 6.15 Bitcoin. <laughs> As I said, it's taken off, it's taken off, right? And it's taken on a life of its own. And and in a way, I think it, it could well become one of those sort of like mythological kind of Bitcoin numbers, <laughs> you know, g- going forward. I, w- I was asked to try something recently and um, I priced it at 6.15% of profit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, there, I see it pop up all over the place. Um, and I think it's really funny. You know, I, I really enjoy it. Um, so yeah, and it's great when a meme uh, outlives you and you have no idea, you know, people have no idea you're the one who created the meme. Um, that's the point of memes. Don't, don't mm-hmm. watermark your memes. They're not yours. Uh, they're for everybody, right? Like, I don't know how many people in the community who are brand new, uh, know that stacking sats came from Matt O'Dell, but you know Matt, that's Matt's contribution, and he gifted it for free to the community, of course, because that's the point of memes. And you know there are many people who know the phrase stacking sats who have never heard of Matt O'Dell. Like uh, Joe mm-hmm. Rogan reads it before every podcast now, right? So mm-hmm. that's an extremely effective meme, and you know there's a lot of information compression in that meme, and it's been helpful to people. And uh, yeah, it's it's great when you. That's sort of like how you know you like, um, or it's sort of how we we judge each other in Bitcoin. Like, does this guy have a meme? Did this guy create a meme? You know, <laughs> like that's sort of the game you're playing when you're on Bitcoin Twitter. Like, whereas none of us are really making like technical, or I mean, some of us are, but you know, uh, the people that are extremely active on Twitter are not usually making technical contributions. And mm-hmm. so uh, it tends to be this this game of brinksmanship of like, what, what meme did you create? You know, and if you can get a meme that sticks, uh, you, you become immortal in the community, you know? <laughs> but I mean, it's, and it's, it's of equal importance as any sort of technical contribution. Um, actually, let me just see. I think I, I don't know if I'd say that, but here. it depends on the meme. I think like, uh, I think Matt's meme is an incredibly important meme. And I've said this multiple times, but you know, because uh, stacking sats turns hodling from a passive activity into an active activity, mm. it increases dollar cost averaging, uh, which sets the floor higher for the Bitcoin price. It's alliterative and it lowers the denomination uh, of Bitcoin to overcome unit bias. So there is a lot of information compression in that meme. And I think that meme is Hall of Fame classic all time, probably the mm. number number two after HODL, honestly. The reason I say that... Th- they they have almost equal importance to anything else. Is is that it is the marketing department, right? I mean, look look yeah. what what happened yeah. with, with with Laser Ray, 
Yeah. Um, it, it has given so much more visibility. Yeah, it's funny, um, too, because the the laser eye meme, like the guys just dropped it on my uh, in my DMs. They said, hey, we're doing laser eyes. You in? I was like, of course. So I put on laser eyes and I just immediately started memeing it out to everybody I possibly could. Right. <laughs> and so that's how we ended up with, um, you know, I, I think I was the one who got Senator Lummis uh, to get on board the meme train. And then once you get a sitting U.S. Uh, senator, you know, sky's the limit from there. And then, you know, the, the laser eye campaign has been one of the greatest uh, Bitcoin memes, uh, probably of 2021, I think. So, you know, big shout out to Chairforce and those yeah, guys man. who came up with that. That's brilliant. It was great. But anyway, I mean, 6.15, I mean, it, it started a um, stacking frenzy. And, and I remember, yeah. I mean, remember all your... Um, infuriating uh <laughs> all the posts yeah, um, yeah well cash app cash app yeah. screenshots where you're just like fuck this guy now i have to stack again yep you know it, it definitely particularly among sort of like alpha types like competition is mm-hmm. is, is is key right and 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 you and you did that i mean there was a bit of a frenzy yeah. and uh, i still yeah, see the- people that's the reason oh, I was just gonna say that's the reason why I um why I mentioned Matt's meme stacking stats because uh 6.15 is a you know offshoot or a compendium piece to stacking sats, which is like how many sats are we gonna stack? We're gonna stack until we get 615 million sats. Like that's how many. Uh because I remember when they were first Matt and Marty actually started the Cash App uh posting because Cash App was one of their sponsors and they were buying small amounts of Bitcoin, like five dollars here, ten dollars here. And I was, to me, I was looking at this and I was like, no, fuck this. We're going to max out the entire stack. We're going to buy as much as we fucking can. That's what we're going to do. And I, so I started posting screenshots where I upped the ante and then everybody started being like, no, fuck you. I'm getting some, I'm getting some. And it turned into this, you know, it was competitive, but it was good natured um, because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was a, it was a reminder it's like having gym buddies or something, right? Like it's a reminder to, to go hard in the gym. Like it's a reminder to stack stack sats for your future. And so I think making it a competition, putting a little bit of a, a lure behind it and saying, you know, if you do stack sats, there's a, there's a beautiful life uh, on the other end of this for you. And it, it may include women uh, who are well endowed, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, I think that that really helped a lot of people during the bear market to sort of push through and, uh, you know, go hard. And I know, I know myself, I got high on my own supply. So, you know, I stacked way more sats than I probably should have. Like, uh, you know, I ended up at the end of the bear market being 100% in Bitcoin, having no runway and uh, having to do things like sell my car to make, uh, you know, to get enough money to live and stuff. So I, every time, not even that long ago. Yeah. If I induced, if I induced FOMO in you, I was inducing FOMO in myself also. So. No, no, exactly. But 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 that's the thing. Like you, you are leading by example. I think it's important, you know, because like people tell you they're hodling, but are they really? You know, you don't really know. You you're kind of thinking to yourself, like, am I getting dumped on? Are these OG types? Are they dumping on me? And they're not telling me what's really going on. Um, so I think just being a little more transparent and then you know actively stacking, I think, was helpful to build a little bit more of a community aspect around that. And in that sense, it was quite a generous kind of uh, offering of you to kind of compromise your opsec, really, for for <laughs> yeah, um, I did. For, for example, letting everybody know like how much money you were buying 
paper Bitcoin for or whatever, yeah. you know, or any of the other aspects for, for that, that matter. But. Yeah, that was the thing too about um, in the early days of Twitter or in the 2017 cycle, there were a lot of these influencers, you know, guys like Crypto Randy or whoever, right? And they had tons of tons of followers. I mean, tens of thousands of followers. And uh, they were telling people essentially, you know, buy this coin, it's going to outperform Bitcoin, do this, do that, or whatever. And it was, I think it was very hard uh, from a signaling perspective uh, to figure out if these guys were high informational participants or low informational participants, whether they had significant skin in the game or not, right? Um, so in some sense, I think, you know, compromising my OPSEC in order to better serve the community was a necessary sacrifice at the time, although there are definitely uh, negative externalities from it for me now, but whatever, uh, you know, if you get to have a meme that lives forever, it, it was worth it, you know? It was <laughs> yeah. And you might get to use your gun one day. I mean, maybe. No. Don't show don't show <laughs> up because I will use it. Yeah. This is America. We don't fuck around over here. Oh, no, man. Well, this is, <laughs> this is as close as we get to America and Europe, you know? I've got um, everyone I know here owns owns illegal shotguns and um, yeah. Oh really? You just want to go where, wherever you are. You want to you want to go to the to the rural parts. That's where you want to be right now in this moment in time. But uh, I I fully yeah I fully agree. Six point one five worked on me and um, yeah I, I I felt competitive and I stacked my heart out. I three years in a row I think this this last tax year included as well. I was just about hauling my ass over the line um, <laughs> for the tax man. Yeah. Um, my my, my three-year-old, he was eating uh, pebbles just to uh, <laughs> to fill, it, fill his belly. But oh, um, yeah. It, yeah. it was also kind of because I was like, uh, this this motherfucker, man. He, <laughs> you know, because you, you start thinking like other people, they are actually about to buy your sats. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like all those unbought sats, they're yours. You're, you're entitled to them. And so and I was like... You know, he's not having my fucking sats. Man. When you get to the when you get to the bull market, essentially, um, whatever sats you got with the massive price appreciation we expect in Bitcoin, those are whatever sats you got. So time is of the essence. Like you need to really make hay while the sun shines in terms of uh, you know using the bear market to your full advantage, and that is the time to go hard and sacrifice because you're about to get locked out of the amount of Bitcoin that you want to own, and that has ha- that that was. Another thing that happened to me that uh, made me want to, you know, compromise OPSEC and be a little more transparent, yada, yada, was the fact that I had stopped buying Bitcoin at $600 in 2000, late 2016 because I was like, oh, that's expensive. It's 3x more than where I'm used to buying it, right? And now we look back at $35,000 and you just say, oh, you dipshit. Like, I can't believe you, were, you stopped buying at $600, right? So just mm-hmm. to never take your foot off the gas... You know, like Friar Haas has the whole thing about, you know, uh, being a DCA warrior and being part of the DCA army. And I agree with him. And I have a $20 recurring buy uh, on two separate accounts. So it's $40 a day. Goes off every day. Never think about it. And I'll check on it at the end of the decade, you know, and let you know where it ended mm-hmm. up. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's important to never let up because this really is a once in a species opportunity. And uh, your grandchildren are going to ask you about this. And what's your answer going to be? I, I got high and I played video games instead. Uh, you know, I sat around watching Netflix instead of actually like getting off my ass and you know doing something about this. Or, or even worse, I had Bitcoin and I sold it 
that's, I don't want to tell my grandchildren that I want to tell them, you know, your grandfather had foresight and vision and, you know, he was a disciplined person who stuck to his principles when the world was against him. And that's why I'm telling you this story in a mansion, mm-hmm. right? That's what I want mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. It's about legacy, man. We're all gonna, we're all gonna, we're all gonna pop our clogs one day, right? And yeah. like, do you wanna, do you wanna live forever, or do you wanna just be some, some sack of bones in the dirt somewhere? And uh, I, I grew up hearing stories about my great uncles and other family members who fought in the resistance during the Second World War, who lost their lives, uh, you know, fighting for, for, for our freedom. We're in important times, right? Mm-hmm. This is like these are tectonic shifts that are happening. What team are you going to be on? Like, wh- what is? Are you going to have any kind of legacy, or what do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, I struggle, as I'm sure you do, with with, with plenty of um, well-intentioned, lovely, on paper, clever people. They seem like intellectual pygmies nowadays, right? Uh, I mean, they are blind and they are not going to be remembered. These people are intent on throwing the baby out with the bathwater and bringing chaos into our society. I mean, that's what it is, you know, Um, and those times are coming. And people like us who are, you know, rationally optimistic about the future and trying to build stable bedrock on top of stable bedrock, which is Bitcoin, in order to have prosperous lives, um, we are the antidote to that chaos. We are the order to that chaos. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to win. Honestly, I, I really do believe that. Uh, that's why I'm here. And I have all of my money in Bitcoin. So I'm very tied to Bitcoin. Uh, attacks on Bitcoin feel as though they are attacks on on me personally. Uh, and in, in many ways they are. I think that essentially... We're going to have to go through those turbulent times, though, in order to get to the other side. You know, there's there's no way around it. We're not, we don't get to skip over it. You know, things are not going to be easy because you have too many people that are apathetic uh, and dependent and are willing to, you know, repeat uh, the wrong thing and recite these shibboleths uh, in an effort to, you know, essentially not be singled out. Um, we don't have a we don't we don't have an abundance of courage anymore. I think. You know, if you think about men like our grandfathers who uh, fought alongside each other in World War II, um, the, we have very few men like that anymore. And everybody just tends to be sort of weak and cowardly and go along with whatever uh, agendas that have been set for them, despite, uh, you know, how evil those agendas might be or how short-sighted or uh, et cetera. Yeah, man. Um, so you're talking about rational optimism there. Um, just to dive into to, to your own personal story a little bit more, you've talked you've talked several times about your your, your rabbit hole story, right? About how you went to the casino and yeah. won some money, and then you kind of spunked it on, on on Bitcoin the following day. Kind of a really poetic illustration of a literal conversion of sort of nihilism to mm-hmm. rational optimism. Even if you, even if you might not have been aware of it, that that's what it was at the time. Yeah. Um, what What was it in your early life, in your upbringing, in your personality, in your in your life experiences that that made you susceptible to to receive this idea of of, of Bitcoin in the first place? Even. Yeah. So I think um, 
I'd always talked a lot with my father about delayed gratification, uh, the power of compounding, just investments in general. I had been an investor since I was uh, 16 years old. So uh, I traded during the 08 financial crisis. I, you know, I day traded. Uh, they weren't shit coins at the time, but I was uh, day trading uh, penny stocks, biopharma penny stocks. So I had a lot of knowledge uh, beforehand about, you know, the financial markets. And so to me, it was it was kind of like, okay, well, this is something that I could get interested in. But to be honest with you, um, that wasn't until I started doing any research. Uh, when I first left the casino, the thought process was, I just want to continue to gamble. What is something that seems like an insane gamble outside of the casino? Um, because, you know, if you're a seasoned gambler like I am, you know that if you go back to the casino the next day, you're going to drop it all back. So I thought, what's a gamble that I could do maybe on the internet or whatever? Maybe I could play online poker or something like that. And it popped in my head. I thought about Bitcoin because I had known about it from 2012. Um, this is like late 2014, like Christmas time 2014. I had known about it from the 2012 era because me and a buddy had tried to buy drugs on the Silk Road and you know, obviously I didn't go through with it because sending drugs to yourself is federally illegal. And, uh, I was, you know, too scared to do that. I, so I looked, I, I had known about it when it was at 1200. My same buddy had told me about it and he goes, you know, essentially like we missed our shot. And I was like, fuck, we did like, we could have been millionaires, yada, yada. So it popped in my head. And then I go, I wonder what it's trading at. And it was trading at like 200 something. So I was, you know, obviously buy low, sell high. I was like, okay, this thing is well below its prior high, if it just gets back to its prior high, I'm going to, you know, crush it on this, on this trade. Um, so I just blindly bought, uh, you know, Bitcoin with my winnings. And then I had this sort of voice in the back of my head, um, from, you know, trading penny stocks with, with basically zero due diligence. Um, and it was like, you know what, maybe I should actually look into this because that had not gone well for me. I had, I had gotten really burned significantly, like, which is what happens when you're a low informational participant in a market, you know, um, a fool and his money are soon parted essentially. So I had this voice in the back of my head saying, you need to diligence this thing. You need to really look into it. So the next day I read the white paper, like when I bought Bitcoin, I didn't even know it was a 21 million supply. I had no idea what I was buying. Right. So then I did my diligence and I looked into it. And then I, then the minute I read the white paper and I read a few forum posts, I had that sort of like that three day rabbit hole journey that a lot of people have where like, I couldn't stop reading about Bitcoin. And then it just was forever. Uh, and it's been every day since, essentially. Like I have just nonstop read about Bitcoin, listened to stuff about Bitcoin, interacted with Bitcoin. Like there hasn't been a day in my life where I haven't done Bitcoin things since this epiphany dawned on me. And uh, I remember once I found out about the coin supply, I'd quickly divided the amount of coins I had by $100 million per coin because there's 100 million sats. And I was, I was doing the math that one sat might be $1. And this was back when Bitcoin was, you know, $220 or something like that. So I was just, I really bought into the narrative that this is going to be the, you know, the global next global reserve currency, because I think once you understand it from a first principles, you know, vantage point, that's the thing that makes the most sense to you. Um, so I remember doing the math on a hundred million times my amount of coins and I, uh, just got super excited, obviously. And then I was like, you know what? I need to just buy as much Bitcoin as I can. Um, but we didn't have we didn't have DCA back then. Um, so really, you just buy whenever you got some money and whenever it was convenient for you. And yeah, then it's just been the journey ever since. I think um, when I look back on my life in terms of like, what are the touch points that led me to grok Bitcoin so quickly? Because I pretty much 
I pretty much understood it immediately once I actually did some research. Um, they are, there's a few things. My grandfather had been stationed in East Africa during World War II, and he told me a story about a GI um, buddy of his who was doing gray market currency trading and who had come home from East Africa with just a shit ton of money. And this guy later went on to become the wealthiest man uh, that my grandfather knew. And I think he was worth like $100 million at the time of his death, something like that. So that put this bug in my head that was essentially, um, oh, wait, you can trade money. You can trade different currency pairs. That was something that was early and often. Then there was the other one, which was uh, SETI. Um, I don't know if you know about SETI, but SETI is Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they used to have a computer screensaver program that was shared computing power. Um, and we, I would do this in the late 90s. I, so when your computer was dormant, it would be searching for extraterrestrial life. And uh, it was searching with, you know, everybody else around the world and your computing power was being shared uh, and resourced with each other in order to, you know, come together over this larger goal. So that was number two. And then number three was uh, the, the 08 financial crisis because I was, you know, in college at the time. Um, and I, it just really was impactful for me what was going on. Um, and it seems sort of like the the death of capitalism was occurring. And so I stopped going to class and I just stayed in my room and watched CNBC all day and uh, traded instead. And, uh, you know, I, di- I did okay, actually, like accidentally throughout that crisis. But those were sort of the three dominoes, I think, that needed to fall uh, in my life for me to go backwards and uh, understand Bitcoin, like when I first came in contact with it. So... Did you at any point before that kind of smell a rat? Like, did you, when, when the 08 crisis happened, did you actually realize the severity of what was going on? Did you realize the dollar was terminal? I I understood that the money printing would not stop. I think that was apparent to me that once, and that was, goes as far back as 08, that once Pandora's box was open, um, that you could never close it again. I understood that it was fundamentally unfair uh, I understood that we were sort of entrenching a, a permanent underclass in American life because if you didn't own assets, you weren't going to be a part of the price appreciation. Um, but I also, I didn't understand what the solutions might be. I wasn't interested in looking for solutions because it seemed like there weren't any presently. Um, so I was just going to have to deal along with everybody else um, and there was no escaping the system. I didn't think gold was a viable solution um, just because psychologically very few people hold gold hold gold uh in high regard and it didn't seem like that was likely to change and i I knew enough about uh behavioral economics to know that psychology drives markets and uh, demographics drive markets and young people didn't seem to be interested in gold so i don't know i knew all that and then i sort of resigned myself to the idea that my life was going to be worse than my parents life and that was uh that's sort of still a pervasive feeling amongst the millennial population and below in American life, and and I would assume globally, um, maybe not maybe not in the third world, but in developed nations. And so, yeah, for me, it was this idea that things were bad; they were going to keep getting bad, and there was nothing we could do to stop it. So we just had to, you know, make do. Um, and when I finally looked into Bitcoin, I thought, "Holy shit!" And then it kickstarted this this energy in me that I, that I had uh, pre-08 financial crisis where I thought, no, things can really be better for me. Like I did, I used to think I missed it, you know, like with the, the prosperous times in American life, the boom times mm-hmm. in American life, the peak of American life, 
that it, that it had passed me by essentially. Well, even uh, just the nineties, right? I mean, yeah. certainly for property, at least in Europe, and I'm sure the same in America, you could have made a fucking ton if you well, had been like 10, 15 years younger. Exactly. And it was obvious um, at the time when you go back and look through the history. And to me, I'm sitting there as an 18 year old, 19 year old, when the 08 financial crisis happens, I'm going, man, these fucking baby boomers, they had the golden goose, like, and they killed it. And now it's dead for all of us. And we can't participate in it the same way they did. And so, you know, prosperity is behind us. I'm never going to do as well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I was, you know, I was hating on the baby boomers for having it so easy. And then I, you know, got into Bitcoin. And then obviously, like, the price appreciation has been phenomenal. And now I'm fully prepared for, uh, subsequent generations to hate on early Bitcoiners uh, for how easy we had it, right? Which I think will happen because they're going to look mm-hmm. back and say, "All you had to do was buy Bitcoin; it was so easy," you know, right? Um, so yeah, it just it just gave me a lot of hope, uh, positivity for the future, and my you know sort of unbridled optimism um, has been rewarded. Essentially, you know, it's one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is that. Bitcoin sort of operates like a demigod in this way that it punishes people who doubt it and it rewards people who believe in it or followers or adherents, right? So, you know, if you have doubted Bitcoin since the beginning, uh, in terms of price appreciation, you have been getting massively punished. And if you have believed in Bitcoin since the beginning, in terms of price appreciation, massively rewarded, right? And I don't see any any reason why that trend uh, will not continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, whether you whether you grok it or not, it's going to affect you one way or another. Exactly. Right. It's a little bit like fate that way. But I think it's interesting that you um, that you already kind of realized the terminal nature of the dollar in in, in two thousand and eight. Because I say, I wouldn't say I I didn't pinpoint it to the dollar. I just knew that the financial okay. system was fucked up. Right. Right. It was part of that whole Occupy Wall Street thing. But I didn't. Yes. I didn't realize it was the money quite yet, you know? Yeah, because I didn't. And I realized it, the world was in a dire situation. I was I was sat outside drinking a coffee and I was seeing the <clears throat> the, 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 the lineup from the sort of bail-in in, in the bank, you know, like mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the UK banks. I think in my naivety, I just thought, this is something that will be better like 10 years, 15 years from now. Um, and I and and I think whether you're talking about Bitcoin or whether you're talking about um, having a clear prism um, mm-hmm. to 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 look at what's going on today, the key to understanding everything uh, clearly is being aware. If 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 you if you understand the um, the the federal reserve system what how it has enslaved the entire world essentially um if you understand that the dollar is dying and that there's no way back all of a sudden it's much easier to understand bitcoin and it's much easier to understand why the fuck they are doing everything they're doing right now yeah uh, i think you know, trying to impose another control grid on us uh-huh i think i had i had heard maybe this was a joe rogan quote essentially that um occupy wall street was sort of like a collection of white blood cells who didn't really know what was happening but knew that there was a problem that they needed to crowd around right and I, I definitely felt that energy. I wasn't there in New York, but I, I went to one of the satellite events and, uh, you know, I was 
definitely supportive of what was going on. And then it became a shit show and it was chaotic and et cetera. But, you know, it's been really interesting. Like, um, I think the racism thing for one, the intersectionality, all that kind of stuff, the identity politics, more or less, um, I think are a direct offshoot of that because people, people, you know, in America, the tabloids were publishing pictures of bankers fleeing their offices, right. With their suit jackets over their head in disgrace because we were funding their, um, their bonuses. And some of these bonuses were 10, 20, $50 million when these people had just collapsed the global economy. Right. Uh, so, you know, the out, the outrage was palpable. Why the fuck are we funding these people's bonuses? Like how come no one has gone to jail? How come the system wasn't overhauled, you know, et cetera, on and on and on and on. Right. Um, Americans in general were aligned and they knew that these people are, you know, villains in our society and they are doing things that are incredibly nefarious and are unfair and, you know, we hate them and we want it stopped. Right. And post Occupy Wall Street, you see the incidences of racism, um, you know, mentioned in the media, not not the actual, you know, um, the actual instances of racism didn't go up at all, but the amount that they were mentioned in the media went up, you know, tenfold, and then they go up further after that fact, and then you know, progressively to today, where it's reached this sort of fever pitch, where it seems very obvious to me that the the you know powers that be are using race, uh, you know, a race war to keep people um, sort of docile and in control and, uh, you know, where they want them because mm-hmm. everybody was too close to the center of power. Everybody got really close. Um, they, you know, nobody quite got to the dollar is, that wasn't a mainstream narrative at that time, that the dollar is the wrecking ball destroying the world. But they were close enough that it scared the powers that be uh, into, you know, perpetuating this large-scale propaganda campaign on the American public through the traditional news media. And that's what we're living in both here and abroad because this is a global phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. I was speaking to Zuby a couple of weeks ago and he was saying something very similar, you know, they're selling racism as if it's at an all time high when it's in fact at an all time low. Yeah. He he has this thing. Everything has been reversed. He says um, the demand for racism vastly outweighs the supply essentially <laughs> they're manufacturing it yeah. you know yeah, yeah. and you can yeah. feel that like i mean i was uh i was i voted for obama in 2008 and i was at uh his inauguration and you know in chicago and uh it just felt like we were living in post-racial america it really felt like race wasn't a factor anymore and now i know that like some of that was naivete obviously because you know that we live in the fractal of a racist past and et cetera et cetera and there are good points to be made um you know about systemic racism i i think for sure but to use it the way it's being used in in mainstream uh media is is clearly just an effort to divide and i i that's a filtering mechanism for me that if i if we if we don't see eye to eye on that regardless of you know race color gender creed whatever um, you're just not really a person that I want to talk to, essentially. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think most people are good people who who aren't racist. You know, I agree. And another thing, I th- another place where we saw a real spike, I think, in 2008 was in the sort of diseases of the d- despair, the nihilism, mm-hmm. the hedonism, mm-hmm. um, all of the the things that that are rooted in in the belief that there is no future for you. Mm-hmm. Or, or certainly no future or value. 
And um, yeah, I've often thought that that was born out of seeing all these um, injustices happen in front of you, and uh, and and no one was no one was being held responsible. No one was going to jail, as you were saying. And yeah. um, what the fuck does anything matter then? Uh, you know, that's kind of the seed that it sows in your in, in your brain. I think. I think also, you know, this is a direct economic issue. Um, this is directly related to the Triffin dilemma, at least here in America, uh, in America's heartland. You know, we have totally bombed out our manufacturing base and sent it overseas because of our, you know, exorbitant uh, dollar privilege. And essentially, the only thing America exports these days is is dollars. And so these people who, you know, like I, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm a descendant of one of them. My grandfather worked at, at the steel mill. And, uh, you know, there's there used to be a long tradition of American craftsmanship and the quality of American products. Um, and that was felt here and across the world. And that doesn't exist anymore. And I think it largely doesn't exist because of the Triffin dilemma and because our chief export is dollars. And so you have these people um, who have a, a story, essentially, that, you know, they're supposed to be working in the factory, creating, you know, American, uh, you know, American products for American people that uh, something they can be proud of that, la- that stand the test of time. Um, but when you look at the economic reality of their circumstances and their environment, um, that story is vastly out of date and it doesn't play anymore. So there's this tension between who they're supposed to be and what what their lives actually are and the opportunities that they were given. And so I think that creates this uh, this depression and that depression leads to drug use it leads to suicide especially amongst uh middle-aged white males and but that's something that's a population that you know frankly nobody gives a fuck about you know they just don't care um so mm-hmm. middle-aged white males can continue to kill themselves and to some degree it's it's funny uh or it's it's at least non-bothersome to the uh the elites in uh on the left coast well they're the enemy right at this point yeah because they're racist. So whatever yeah. happens to them is, you know, who cares? They were they were a bunch of terrible racists anyway, right? Privileged racists. Yep. Right? Born into privilege. It's crazy. I mean, the, the how disparate these, you know, tradition or these mainstream narratives are uh, from reality and what you can see with your own eyeballs. I mean, it just, it creates this tension, I think, in everybody. And trying to resolve that tension uh, sometimes has disastrous consequences, right? Like... Mm-hmm. resolving it via drugs and alcohol or resolving it via suicide or resolving it by letting the world make you crazy, um, steal your mental health, steal your sanity. All of those ways are terrible ways to try and resolve this tension. You know, The best way I've, I know uh, that I've found is to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Every time something is, is bad, I go, I'm just going to buy some more Bitcoin because at least that, that's something I know and it feels, feels like a, a positive affirmative action to me. But also, I think, um, to me, it's like being happy. I know mm-hmm. that sounds uh, that sounds trite, but um, I mean, the world could do with a lot more people full of purpose and you know love yeah. and happiness and 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 direction, and um, and and in that regard. I, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you because um, you are the only person I think that I know that has retired at a younger age than me. 
and um the some of the some of the questions that i used to get was was sort of like um when you got to get bored um, <laughs> what why why would you stop making money if you could do you have no ambition was this just a play for you like it was for me um for happiness for fulfillment mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what what was behind that? And 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 yeah, maybe talk a bit about that. I, you know, for me, it's like the uh, you know I have enough wealth now that the marginal utility of each additional dollar, um, while it's nice in terms of Bitcoin price appreciation, because it just shows you know how right we are. And I, fuck, I love being right. You know, or being right is the best. Um, but you know, the, the actual marginal, once, once you have enough money to have a roof over your head and to, to go out, um, you know, to, to a nice dinner with your friends and and not think about what things cost on the menu, or you don't look at the prices when you go to the grocery store, you've made it like you're set, you know what I mean? You're going to be okay Mm -hmm. no matter what happens. So for me, I could, yes, I could be out there, you know, uh, working a job and trying to push myself to the limit um, to earn, you know, those extra dollars or even the extra sats. But, you know, I have uh, two small children and we're expecting a third. And uh, I think, you know, the I didn't have a good childhood. And uh, I think, you know, creating a good childhood for them, I think parenting, I think of parenting as sort of a pass-fail proposition. Um, and I'll be damned if I'm going to fail it, essentially. So mm-hmm. just spending a lot of time with my children um because that time is so fucking valuable and you'll never get it back and i know that people do have to make the economic calculation where you know they they don't have the ability to retire when they have young children um or even to stop working because it'll fuck up your career and all sorts of things um but for me i do have that up that opportunity and so i'm willing to sacrifice some degree of money uh even if it ends up being tens of millions of dollars in the future which i'm sure it will um for the time to be home and, you know, be a dad now and take part in all their special little moments and just let them know that, uh, daddy loves them and teach them things and spend time with them and just be together. You know, like that's, if you have the ability to do that, why, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? Right. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that I'm permanently retired. Like if I feel like I want to go work when the kids are older and they don't need me as much, like I will, you know, I'll just do whatever I fucking feel like. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I have that optionality. It, what is money other than, you know, social, mo- what does it give you really other than social mobility, uh, you know, optionality, uh, some, some degree of security, like that's it. That's what money is good for. Mm-hmm. So use it for those three things. Don't use it to buy a fucking Ferrari and then go to work, you know, or drive the, you know, the Mercedes and then, you know, wear your suit and go to your job. Like, uh, you, you're just on the hamster wheel at that point, you know? agree i mean happiness is one of the most virtuous things you can pursue i think and 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 personally speaking nothing makes me more happy than than a being with my family seeing my family happy seeing my little three-year-old boy supremely confident and happy that that's something that doesn't unfortunately doesn't happen to every kid out there Mm -hmm. far from it nowadays and and i think like if if more people had had the opportunity the 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 peace, if if you like, the space to 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 pursue to pursue it, they wouldn't have been so uh, easy to persuade that we are in a dire place. That you know they they need to 
vaccinate themselves for something that's <laughs> probably not going to mean a lot to them, um, yeah. or th- or that they're racist, or that their family are mm-hmm. racists, or, or w- whatever they're being convinced of. It's it's so it's crazy. a shield. Yeah, it, it is, and it's also you know it's the uh, the economic reality of a lot of people that they have to go along with these insane agendas in order to you know have a life. Um, I think one of the most destructive narratives that I continuously hear is that you know, children are quote unquote burdensome and they're expensive and they're bad for the environment and they're going to prevent you from living your best life and all this kind of shit, you know? And it's like, I don't know, man, for me, um, I did all the shit I wanted to do in my twenties. Uh, you know, I drank in all the exotic locations you're supposed to drink in and, you know, took all the drugs and had all the fun and, you know, slept around and whatever. And continuing that for, I don't know, the next, 10, 20, 30 years, um, just seems like a slow suicide to me. And it's not something that I'm interested in participating in anymore. It seemed like a slow suicide when I was doing it, but I think, you know, to some degree you have to engage in some level of hedonism in your twenties just to understand what it's all about. Right. So that you know that you're not missing out on anything. But, uh, yeah, I, I, the idea that my children are a burden to me, no, no, they are, uh, you know, I'm responsible to them, but they are not they are a responsibility of mine, but they are not a burden. I love them and I chose to have them and they have made my life immeasurably better. And, you know, I mean, I think every parent will tell you that, you know, or most parents, 99% of parents will tell you some degree of the same that, uh, Mm. you know, their children have been a massive blessing to them. And if you don't feel that way about your children, it's because you're a shitty fucking parent. You know, that's why. Yeah. Nothing makes me want to, go to the to the barricades more than than being a father mm-hmm. you know there's there's definitely worth something worth fighting for and um but but anyway speaking of this whole sort of clown world bitcoin has a way of uh, we have a way of killing our heroes but but also i think possibly for a lot of bitcoiners killing your friends i don't know yeah. whether you find this but um sometimes it's it's a lonely place yeah being a bitcoiner and being being based is is a lonely experience sometimes yeah i um you know for me i i used to be emotionally distressed about the fact that i uh could no longer see eye to eye with certain people who i had known for a long time in my life and now i've adopted this attitude of like hmm i wonder why they feel that way fuck them (laughs) i mean that's where i'm at now where it's like Mm. i you know for me my life Ever since I started speaking truth into my life, um, you know, my truth, what I perceive to be the truth and really been diligent about that, my life has gotten a lot better, a lot better. And yeah, some relationships mm. sloughed off. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, you got to be radically true to yourself. Otherwise, you're going to end up lead, like leading the life that somebody else wants you to lead for, you know, reasons they don't even understand be- just because they want to keep you under control, you know. I'm, it's like that Kanye line where he's like, I'm not out of control. I'm just not in their control, you know? Mm. Um, they, and they'll call you all sorts of terrible things and this and that and yada, yada. But I don't know. At the end of the day, like, I don't, to me, I used to care. I really did. I really used to care a lot. And I used to think, I want to bring these people along with me. Um, I want to I save them. I want to help them. I want to do the best I can. But, you know. Shit, man, I'm like Noah, and uh, I've been telling people it's been raining for, you know, years and years now, and nobody's fucking listening. 
So, yeah. A, at this point, I just have to throw up my hands and say, I told you. I told you repeatedly. So it's up to you what you do with the information now. It's not up to me. Um, and I, yeah, so I, I, I just, I just don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> like I just don't. I wish I did, honestly, but I don't. No, I don't care. I really don't care. It feels liberating to not care. Yeah, also. I was going to say that must be very liberating because um, I, 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 I don't give a shit what they think about me. Like I'm Teflon. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't give a fuck about that. They can think I'm as uh, I'm as crazy as they like, but you don't want to you don't want to see loved ones, friends, family. You don't want to see them suffer. You don't want to see them make bad decisions. Ultimately, I think having a happy life, having a prosperous life, is comes down to decision making. Mm-hmm. And I just see so many people around me making f- terrible fucking decisions. Oh yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. Again, yesterday I found out that one of my longest uh, or oldest friends who's already had corona who's fit and uh, and and uh, and young had the fucking vaccine like right it, it partly makes you want to write them off and uh, also makes you want to punch, punch them in the balls <laughs> um but 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 as you say like there's um there's there's nothing you can do about it and ultimately i suppose it's just wasted energy i think i've i've taken an extreme um you know freedom mindset surrounding this and just said hey you know, everybody's free to do what they want to do, and that includes uh, acting like a sheep and essentially doing whatever the television tells them to do. Hey, you're free to do that, mm. but uh, I think this is a Frank Zappa quote: is essentially like, listen, if you end up with a bad life because you listen to, you know, your priest or the man on television, like that's your own damn fault, you know. So if that's you and you're doing those things, um, I do think that you're going to come to your deathbed and look back and have a tremendous degree of regret. Whereas, you know, because it, it's kind of like it's this thing and where it's essentially like truth and lies are it's important to stay on truth or to try and always be finding the truth. Because if you accept lies, essentially every truth is painful, really, because reality is really difficult. Uh, life is difficult. Um, life is suffering. Right. From like the Buddhist perspective. Um so you got to deal with that unpleasant truth up front, but then you can, you know, sort of set your ship and, you know, wreck it appropriately and head in the right direction. And that's better to take the pain up front. If you lie to yourself, you know, you say, no, my, we are heading in the right direction. This is the way I'm supposed to be going. Um, you know, you end up really far off course and this is sort of like a compounding effect on the lie where it ends up destroying your entire life because you've gone Mm. so far away from who you were supposed to be and you never get back to that person because that person is now so far off in the distance. It's a branch of reality you didn't take. And you just have to sit there on your deathbed looking backwards saying, fuck, I, I fucked it all up. And uh, I, I don't know the type of pain that comes from that because I don't live that way. But I've seen it in other people's eyes and I know it's a real phenomenon. And I'll be mm-hmm. fucking goddamned if it's going to be me. No way. Rather deal with you know all the idiots in the here and now and all the pain in the here and now. Uh, give it to me up front, you know. I want all of it. I want all the smoke. I want all the pain. I want everything. Mm. Yeah, I relate to that. I mean, one thing that has frustrated me greatly o- o- over the last ten years, let's say, is that we become such a culture of um, being kind over, be- you know, o- over speaking the truth. And um, as somebody who always valued speaking the truth. 
that was terribly frustrating, particularly because I found myself buying into it or I found myself adapting to it and it made me hate myself. You know, it made me always made me feel really fake, I suppose, in, in, in the simplest, in the simplest way, way possible. And actually over the last few years, just really embracing speaking truth, whatever the cost, you know, not being purposely mean, um, but just saying saying things as you see it is is one of the most liberating things you can do, and it just takes people yeah. some adjusting. That's one of the areas where I probably made mistakes. Is um, I was probably so pissed off from all of the years I had to spend lying in order to you know in order for self preservation that I was too giddy and excited to tell the truth to anybody and everybody whenever they would listen. And just like there are white lies, I think there are black truths and there are things that don't need to be said, even if they are true. And so I was probably uh, not very judicious in my telling of the truth early on. And I'm trying to do better about that now and not just be a dickhead. Like even if something is true, you don't have to be a dick about it. You know what I mean? That's been a struggle for me though, because I just I really prize the truth. So, and I don't care what people say to me. You know, people can say terrible, awful things to me. So, like, I sometimes think everybody has a tough skin, and they don't. And I don't know whether you find this yourself, but a lot of people they will get a bit sort of uh, have their nose put out of joint by by me speaking the truth. Mm. But what I find is that out of everyone I know, they all come to me for advice. Like they're always, yep. I'm always the one they come to when they're in a pickle, when they, when they need it, when they need it real. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's accurate in my experience. Uh, also people don't really, you know, I think this is just a predilection of human nature that, you know, people don't want to deal with the truth and, uh, denial is probably the chief coping mechanism of, of most people. Um, I even see it in my, you know, two-year-old daughter who, when she gets hurt, uh, her, her favorite strategy for dealing with the pain is to pretend like it's not happening. Um, so you say you catch her and she fell off something and you say, Oh, did you fall? Are you okay? Come here. Like daddy will give you a kiss and a hug and whatever. And, uh, she goes, Hmm, I didn't fall. I'm good. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, so it's very, I mean, it's innate to human beings. She has not been taught this behavior. We always try and get her to stay present in her feelings. And, um, this is just something that's in her. And I think it's in a lot of people to, you know, when you tell people, when you tell people the truth or when the truth is exposed, um, you know, you have two choices. You have acceptance or you have denial. Um, and unfortunately, the vast majority of people, I would say 97% of people choose to go into straight up denial about that truth um, because it's unpleasant and uncomfortable to deal with. So killing our heroes, um, your experience with Trace was that Bitcoin 2019? Oh yeah, that was it. Um, was, it was it unconfiscatable? Uh, I think it was in it was in ni- 19. Yeah, it was at Tones Conference in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. So, tell us a little bit about that because I thought that showed tremendous integrity on your part. You know, like here was one of your, I assume, actual yeah. heroes. I mean, you must have consumed a lot of his content, like a yep. lot of us. Uh, have and uh, and did and uh, you got to meet mm-hmm. him oh yeah i uh yeah trace was definitely um that whole situation was incredibly um 
I don't know. It was just tough. It was a tough situation because I did. I really did have some degree of hero worship for Trace because Trace had been one of the people um, that I was listening to in 2015, 16 um, about where this thing was headed. And, you know, a lot of his thought leadership, I think, still stands. And I think he has, you know, said uh, a lot of things about Bitcoin that uh, are extremely worthwhile still to this day. And, but, you know, essentially... And I knew that I knew that Trace was a shitcoiner. And to be honest with you, I, I don't really have a problem with people shitcoining in order to make. I mean, Goldbug. Yeah, well, he was a Goldbug too, but he was also he <laughs> he did a lot of shitcoining. And right. but it was my understanding that he used Bitcoin as his unit of account. And so I, I never really had that big of a problem. I wouldn't personally do it, although I have done it in the past. I mean, I did trade Ethereum and. Uh, the 1617 cycle in order to make more Bitcoin. So I don't have a huge Same. problem. I don't have a huge problem with that behavior. But the difference was Trace had gone on and he had been uh, fudding Bitcoin. And it just all the pieces clicked in for me where, you know, and then he told me explicitly that, you know, this was the next Bitcoin and he wanted the maximalist because they were the most intense hodler base. And you need that in order to have a strong cryptocurrency. And he was mad that um, Adam Back wasn't listening to him about Mimble Wimble and he wanted quote unquote ghost money as he called it and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was the part where I flipped in the conversation from, okay, this guy is doing a little bit of shitcoining in order to make some more Bitcoin to, oh, this guy is like actively attacking Bitcoin. And that was a problem for me. So I, I talked with some other you know, maximalist types, uh, famous Bitcoiners at the, who are at the conference, um, who had also, they knew about this. And so this was not just an isolated incident with me. This was something that Trace was planning. And it was obvious to me that, you know, he was trying to um, seed the conference with this, this coin that he owned, like more than 50% of the circulating supply. And so just in general, you know, bad all over for from a bitcoin perspective and so i just decided to fucking just tweet it all out in the morning when i woke up um and yeah it was a bit of a difficult decision but like i said i you know i just i hew closely to the truth the truth is extremely important to me and so mm. i don't know i just wasn't gonna not say the truth you know like i mean I, if it's a personal thing of uh, somebody's like obviously like I, i'll keep a personal secret all day long but this was a secret that you know could have had negative like repercussions in the bitcoin community and trace did have influence and power so the way he was doing things might have i don't know so i just i felt it was best to just be honest about it right up front and as you were saying he'd, he'd already been fudding it for for probably even a couple of months leading up to it, right? About um, yeah, on joining and yep. whatever Korea, North Korea influence on Bitcoin, whatever tainted coins, all this kind of uh, nonsense. Yeah, and I sort of stumbled my um, I stumbled my way into the whole affair. Uh, you know, I talked to Matt O'Dell about this. I mean, Matt was Matt was like on Trace a lot more than I was. I did, I, did, I was oblivious to the whole thing, um, but you know, Matt had been on him for a while and. You know, he just didn't have the goods on him. He didn't have the evidence. And mm. I stumbled into it like a drunken moron. And I was, you know, <laughs> the only reason Trace um, told me his, you know, I guess secret evil plans was that uh, I was just really, you know, 
being a huge fanboy, I was simping pretty hard. And I was like, Trace, I love you so much, man. You, you know, you, you were the man, dude, and you did this and that and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so do you think he underestimated you or do you think that it was just his ego because you were kind of plying his ego? He thought, here is a here is an opportunity. Yeah, I think it was an egoic. I think it was an egoic thing, and and it was also mm. just you know he had this plan to uh, push Mimblewimblecoin, and you know Trace had done listen Trace had done stuff like this in the background before uh, with shitcoins, but the difference was he wasn't actively attacking Bitcoin, right? Mm. Um, like I that's the that's the line for me. That's the delineation. If you're going to promote shitcoins, um, and especially if you are you know, fudding Bitcoin in order to promote a shitcoin. I mean, I think that's just now you have become an enemy combatant, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, we must mm-hmm. fight you in the battleground of ideas. Um, but if you're like, I don't know, like it's like the Rob, the Rob thing, like the the Breedlove thing that just happened recently. I, I, you know, I agree with, you know, you, you know, the people who say essentially that he should have just come out and uh, been open about it. I, I think. I don't think anybody would have actually cared if he was just like, mm. hey, they're giving me this BitClout token for free and I'm about to dump it for more Bitcoin. Um, I, I know I wouldn't have personally had a problem with that. It was mm. it was the trying to get one over on the community that upset people because people mm. were like, it's obvious to see what you're doing. And, you know, you, you just you're not we're, nobody's buying your story. Right. Um so yeah as i said to you before we um or as we were talking about before we started recording we all have a little fragment of fiat monster still left in us yeah true sometimes that grows in strength you know at moment in moments of weakness that grows in strength for some people it might be food drink um for me it's tobacco or weed you know like i I love getting high and just sitting like devouring bitcoin content um (laughs) Um, you know, but but that's I think I think we all have we all have a little element of that, and and so if now most recently uh, Robert had, had come out and admitted ad- admitted to that, then slayings on on are not meant to be enjoyed, right? You, you, it yeah. was awkward for you with with with, with Trace, um, but it just kind of has to be done, right? You have to oh, yeah, you have I to think, keep fighting on the side of truth, as you say. Listen, I think uh, at some point I myself will be slain. I think anybody who stays around long enough will be slain in Bitcoin because, you know, it's sort of like tall poppy syndrome. You know, you just can't have anybody standing too far above anybody else in this space. And so uh, it's the reason why I, I court my own account dissolutions. Like I actively you know, do things that I know will get me banned from Twitter just so that I can get banned from Twitter again because I don't want to be a person with 100,000 followers, you know. Just want to be a dude who shows up at the conferences and has some drinks with my friends and, you know, holds Bitcoin for the long term. That's who I'm trying to be. I have tremendous respect for that because I there are some people that I know that are, have so much focus on follow account, for example, that mm. it incentivizes... Um, decisions that yep. they otherwise wouldn't have made it's a fiat yeah that's that's a fiat metric caring about your follower count you know especially yeah, i don't know you know if you're if you're a grown man it's like 
are you doing caring about your follower count, dude? You should be uh, focused on uh, capital accumulation and preservation. Like, why don't you focus on your net worth uh, in sats instead of your follower count? Mm. You know, just my two cents. Yeah, exactly. There's a slight sort of small dick syndrome about it. Yeah, what do you, I mean, you know, how stable is that? It's like building a house on quicksand, like trying to, uh, you know, do things to increase your follower count so that you can, what, monetize your following? And then what happens when, you know, your your following decides that you're you're cancelable for this reason or that reason? Uh, goodbye, right? Like your your house will not stand the test of time, and everybody will ultimately on a long enough timeline, everybody will be canceled. No matter how, even it's funny because even if you hold the exact correct opinions that are on brand, on book, on narrative today, uh, they won't mm-hmm. be on brand, on book, on narrative tomorrow. And they'll come for you for the things you said today that were uh, keeping you within the social order, right? So it's like, yeah, mm. don't, I don't know, man. Just get sats. And if it, just get sats. Exactly. Even if it's just to um, to feel good about yourself, it's, um, it's, it's, um, you're putting energy in the, in, in the wrong place. But anyway. And in, and um, in Bitcoin, we're not going to stop slaying heroes anytime soon because that's what we do. So. It seems like it. Yep. But um, last question: What is uh, what is the view that you hold about Bitcoin that may not be a very common one amongst other Bitcoiners? What's a view I hold about Bitcoin that's not common or accepted? I'm trying to think. Well, I don't believe in supercycle, so there's one. Like I don't. The fact that the idea that supercycle is going to occur this time out during this bull market, no, no fucking way. Not even close. Not even fucking close. I'm at. Uh, I'm at like a one or two percent probability on that occurring. Um, I think yeah, it's ninety eight percent likely that uh, there's no not going to be a super cycle, right? I think just because the hodlers are out of dry powder, um, so you know we don't have enough. We're not setting the price. Um, the new whales, the new institutions, the new retail buyers, they're setting the price, and they are scared little bitches. They don't have their mm-hmm. uh, they don't have their strong hands yet. They are weak. Their hands are made of lettuce. And they will drop at the first sight of trouble. First time somebody tweets something they don't like, they will dump. I mean, that's where we're at, right? And and inf- like these institutions have incentives to sell also. You know, so I don't know. I think super cycle theory is an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence, and I see no evidence of it. Mm. Mm. I, I, I agree with you about the super cycle, but I still... And actually, uh, uh, Willie Wu talked about this the other day. He didn't believe in super cycle either, but he did. He did think that it could be the last cycle. I can see the steps to that. You know, we are in a macro climate where um, something could happen. You know, even even those fiat-denominated uh, legacy heads, they might not want to trade back into it. I think it will happen at some point. Um, but, you know, in general, this is a process of education and experience in these markets. And the participants that are coming into these markets now, post-COVID, uh, they don't have a long enough education or experience horizon. Um, you know, it takes a while before you switch your unit. Because what we're really talking about is people switching their unit of account psychologically. The denominator, yeah, yeah that's right. That takes a long time. And uh, before you start thinking in Bitcoin, even people that are extremely technical, steeped in Bitcoin for a number of years, I've talked to many of them that didn't start thinking in Bitcoin for three, four, five years. You know, I think it took me five Mm. years, honestly. So it just takes time. 
and uh, we'll see more participants. It's I think super cycle plays out, you know, the last cycle. Uh, it plays out by the end of the decade at some point. At some time, when once people with big money have the right unit of account in their head, I think they'll start front running the next halving, um, which is essentially what Supercycle is, right? But mm. it's not until enough people have the correct denominator in their head. If you're still trying to make fiat denominated returns, uh, obviously you're not going to think correctly, and it's going to cause you to dump Bitcoin for dollars when really you should be dumping dollars for Bitcoin. Well, ten years definitely seem, seems to fit better with the with the sort of fourth turning thesis, etc. Et as well, I I do um, yeah I do add towards that as well. But uh, dude, great chatting to you, and um, keep putting out good content. I still I still wanted to hear more about your your pre Bitcoin life, what you uh, more about what you were doing because obviously you were in a creative job. All of these sort of things, but uh, that'll have to wait to an, to another time. Next time, we'll do it next time. Yeah, thanks, man. Cool, man. Hey, it was great talking to you. Thanks for having me. You too. Peace, brother. See you, man. Lost love The way you say my name